Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 67. One small disclaimer, I do realize that I've messed up quite a few times on what number of episode we're on, and for the last two weeks I've said we're on episode 65, so I have corrected that today, and we are in fact on episode 67. Today's episode is on Elizabeth Brown Rigg, from midwife to murderer. In this episode, we transport ourselves back to 18th century England, a time of stark social hierarchies, prevalent diseases, and a legal system that struggled to balance societal order with the protection of the vulnerable. Born into a working-class family, Elizabeth Brownrigg's story begins with her marriage to James, an apprentice house painter. Their life was marked by the hardships of the time, including the devastating loss of many of their children from high child mortality rates. England in the 1700s was a place where infectious diseases, poor sanitation, and limited medical knowledge conspired to claim the lives of countless infants and young children. As we explore these societal norms and legal structures that allowed employers to wield unchecked power over their servants and apprentices, we'll witness Elizabeth's journey from midwife to a woman whose dark deeds would shock even the callous sensibilities of her era. Join us on this journey through time as we unravel the harrowing tale of Elizabeth Brownrigg, a woman whose actions would expose the dark underbelly of 18th century England. Born in 1720, Elizabeth came from a working-class family. She wed James, an apprentice house painter, in 1745. Elizabeth would go on to have 16 children, but only three of them would live to adulthood. High rates of child death were a distressing feature of life that affected families in all socioeconomic classes greatly in England in the 1700s. Children faced significant dangers to their survival because of the living conditions that were prevalent during this period. The rate of infant mortality was very high, with many newborns passing away in their first year of life from a variety of causes. The prevalence of infectious diseases, which spread quickly in densely populated metropolitan areas with inadequate sanitation and hygiene, was one of the main causes. Smallpox, measles, and whooping cough epidemics, for example, could take the lives of newborns and early children, particularly in areas where prevention measures were lacking. The difficulties were made worse by the lack of efficient medical treatments. The 1700s saw the development of primitive medical procedures, as well as a narrow understanding of sanitation, hygiene, and disease transmission. Because of this, common ailments that are currently manageable could become lethal for children if proper medical attention was not received. Child mortality rates didn't start to decline significantly until the 19th century, when substantial advancements in public health, sanitation, and medical knowledge started to take hold. The 1700s remain a somber era in English history, characterized by the terrible loss of a great number of young lives as a result of a combination of social, economic, and medical issues. After Elizabeth had finished having children, she decided to become a midwife. She was so skilled at her profession that eventually the officers of the parish of St. Dunstan's in the West were persuaded to assign her as the midwife to their workhouse. Her work here involved working with the very poorest, who were in need of everything, Two young girls, Mary Mitchell and Mary Clifford, were given to her care, 
along with five pounds each for the girl's apprenticeship. Mary Jones, another girl from the London Foundling Hospital, was to be her servant. But these young women would quickly suffer from severe physical abuse at Elizabeth's hands. The system of apprenticeship and servanthood was open to misuse. Many individuals used the foundlings as a means of obtaining slave labor, and Elizabeth was not the only one to abuse others. Yet it was the violence she inflicted that prompted the establishment of protected measures. On May 13, 1965, Mary Jones, at the time 14 years old, was bonded to James and Elizabeth. She would only stay with them for two months, as she would flee the family in hopes of returning to the Foundling Hospital for safety. Mary was treated well by the Brownrigg family during her initial trial period, but after that, her relationship with the Brownrigs would significantly change. When her young charges disobeyed even the smallest of her rules, Elizabeth would frequently strip them naked, bind them to wooden beams or pipes, and then severely beat them with switches, bullwhip handles, and other objects. According to a different story by Mary Jones, Elizabeth would point out mistakes that she made while cleaning the stairs or a room. In retaliation, her arms would be restrained, and Mary Mitchell would be given instructions to repeatedly splash her with the dirty cleaning water. One night, a key was left in the front door, despite the Brownrigs' best efforts to keep everyone inside by locking their doors. That evening, Mary Jones ran away and returned to the London Foundling Hospital. Following a medical assessment, the governors of the London Hospital ordered James to curb his wife's violent behavior. Regretfully, nothing more was done and two girls were still left to bear the Brownrigg's punishments, even after Mary Jones managed to escape. Maybe the lenient tone of the reprimand gave Elizabeth the impression that her abuse could go on, which it obviously could. Because for Mary Clifford, the abuse only came to an end when it was far, far too late. Mary Mitchell would be the second young girl to attempt to flee, but John, Elizabeth's son, found her and made her return. It was ordered that Mary Clifford sleep in a coal cellar naked. Elizabeth would starve her, giving her only bread and water. When she attempted to pry open the cabinets, Elizabeth tied her to a kitchen roof beam and thrashed her for the entire day. What is certain is that the London Foundling Hospital waited to intervene until the neighbors of the Brownrigs raised another alarm. Due to Elizabeth's persistent attacks, Mitchell and Clifford's untreated wounds were becoming infected by June 1767, and they were unable to recover. Elizabeth's neighbors started to see that something was wrong, and they requested that the London Foundling Hospital look at the home more thoroughly. Consequently, Elizabeth turned over Mary Mitchell to the hospital inspector Grundy, who then wanted to know where Mary Clifford was. Eventually, Mary would be discovered in a locked cabinet. Her face was swollen as big as two. Her mouth was so swollen she couldn't shut it, and she was cut under her throat, as if it had been with a cane. She couldn't speak, all her shoulders had sores, and she had two bits of rags upon them. After Mary Clifford was discovered, Elizabeth and her son John fled, but James was caught. Mary Clifford would be taken straight to the hospital, but would die from her injuries on August 9, 1767. An arrest warrant would be issued against Elizabeth and John, and advertisements placed in the newspapers. After attempting to blend in as much as possible, Elizabeth and John traveled throughout London, and eventually found a place to stay at the home of Mr. Dunbar, a Chandler's store owner in Wandsworth. 
But after reading an advert in his newspaper on August 15th, Dunbar realized that his lodgers were the brown rags. He would call for a constable who took custody of Elizabeth and John and sent them to Newgate. In England in the middle of the 18th century, the interactions between employers and their servants or apprentices were marked by a clear power imbalance. The dominant social norms tolerated a degree of cruelty or mistreatment that could be startling by today's standards. Employers using physical discipline to keep control and assert power was neither uncommon nor prohibited. Apprentices and servants were treated like property, subject to contracts that frequently left them at the whim of their employers. In a culture where social hierarchies were ingrained, people in positions of power were free to treat their subordinates however they pleased. Employers would frequently use physical violence as a way to establish their power, and corporal punishment was a typical tactic for disciplining and rectifying alleged wrongdoing. Although it was common practice for employers to beat their apprentices or servants, the law did set some restrictions. In order to prevent blatant abuse and preserve social order, the legal system stepped in and made it illegal for employers to beat their apprentices or servants to death. Because the law understood that extreme violence could cause social unrest and public outrage, it specifically declared that lethal beatings were unlawful. But the Brownriggs had beat one of their servants to death, and they were all arrested. This is the original charge from the Brownriggs trial, which took place on September 7, 1767. It reads, James Brownrigg, Elizabeth his wife, and John their son were indicted, for that they not having the fear of God before their eyes, but being moved by the instigation of the devil, did wickedly, maliciously, and felonously from the 1st of May 1766, and divers other days and times, to the 4th of August 1767, make an assault on Mary Clifford, spinster, that the said Elizabeth, her the said Mary, willfully and of malice aforethought, did make an assault with divers large whips, canes, sticks, and staves, and did strike, beat, and whip over the naked head, shoulders, back, and other parts of her naked body in a cruel and inhumane manner, giving to her divers large wounds, swellings, and bruises, and with divers large hempen cords and iron chains round the neck of the said Mary, did bind and fasten, giving her thereby a large and violent swelling on the neck of her, the said Mary, and in a certain place under the stairs leading into a cellar, in the dwelling house of the said James, did fasten and imprison, by means of which striking, whipping, binding, fastening, confining, and imprisoning her, the said Mary. She did pine and languish till the 9th of August, when the said Mary did die, and the said James and John his son, of malice aforethought, were present, abiding, comforting, and maintaining her, the said Elizabeth, the said Mary, to kill and murder. And her, the said Elizabeth and James, her husband, stood charged on the coroner's inquest for the said murder. According to Capital Punishment UK, the trial would last 11 hours, and Mary Mitchell would be the prosecution's main witness. Mitchell, 16, who had been employed by the Brownriggs for less than two and a half years, testified in court that she had been mistreated from the moment her apprenticeship probationary period ended, and that Mary Clifford had started receiving abuse when her month-long trial period ended and she became legally bound. Mitchell related how their mistress, as well as John, had struck Mary Clifford on the head and shoulders with a walking cane and an earth brush. 
There's also additional incriminating evidence against Elizabeth. When Elizabeth first started to be cruel to Mary Clifford, Mary Mitchell claimed she used to tie her, Mary Clifford, up in the kitchen where she would be undressed and beaten. Elizabeth seldom let off till she had fetched blood, and her most popular form of punishment was a horsewhip. It appears that this round of beating started in the spring of 1767 and ended with the poor girl being tied to a hook that was installed in the kitchen just for that reason. Every week, Mary Clifford was whipped and chained to this hook. Mary Mitchell said in court that while John had taken over once for his mother, no one else in the household typically gave Mary Clifford a beating. She also stated in her testimony that Mary Clifford had broken down some boarding and tried to get food and drink one night, at which point she was found and tied to a door by the neck. When Elizabeth was gone for around a week, Mary Clifford had managed to recuperate somewhat, despite the fact that her shoulders and back were covered with bruises and scabs. But after accusing Mary of not working during her absence, Elizabeth once again chained her to the kitchen hook. George Benham, James's apprentice, also testified and corroborated a lot of Mary Mitchell's testimony. Additionally, he said in court that following James's arrest, he visited him at his small lockup prison. And James instructed George to remove the kitchen beam's hook and burn every stick in the house. George stated in his testimony that Elizabeth had informed him and Mary Mitchell that Mary Clifford's stepmother not be allowed entry into the house if she came looking for Mary, because, quote, the girl's mother was a bad woman and might teach bad things to her daughter. The doctor in the hospital where Mary Clifford was brought after being removed from the Brown Riggs home and the overseers both gave testimony during the trial. William Denby recorded Mary's injuries as follows. The top of her head and shoulders and back appeared very bloody. I turned down the sheet and found from the bottom of her feet to the top of her head, almost one continued sore. Scars that seemed as if cut with an instrument upon the body, legs, and thighs. Upon one hip was a very large wound. It spread about half the palm of my hand. Mary was moved to St. Bartholomew's Hospital on August 5th, and the next day the surgeon, Mr. Young, examined her and verified the medical records. Elizabeth defended herself by saying that, quote, I did give her several lashes, but no design of killing her. The fall of the saucepan with a handle against her neck occasioned her face and neck to swell. I poulticed her neck three times and bathed the place and put three plasters to her shoulders. The surgeon, Mr. Young, denied that a saucepan handle could have caused Mary's neck injury. The jury also didn't find multiple character witnesses for the Brownrigg family credible. Following the trial, James and John were found not guilty of Mary's murder, but nonetheless placed under arrest on an accusation of assaulting and abusing Mary Mitchell. They were later given a six-month prison sentence and fined one shilling apiece. Following Elizabeth's conviction on Friday, September 11th, the judge pronounced her sentence in accordance with the law. Quote, it is my duty to pronounce sentence in accordance with the law that you are to be taken from hence to the prison from whence you came that you be removed on Monday next, the 14th of this instant September, to the usual place of execution, and there to be hanged by the neck until you are dead, your body afterwards to be dissected and autonomized according to the statute, and God have mercy on your soul. Under the Murder Act of 1752, a murderer's corpse was to be dissected immediately following their execution. After being sent to Newgate, Elizabeth was placed in the condemned prison and fettered with leg irons and handcuffs. All she was to get was bread and water. 
The blacksmith then took off her irons and put cords around her hands and arms. After the hangman, Thomas Turles, secured the rope around her neck, she was loaded into a cart and driven to Tyburn. The Newgate Calendar reported that, quote, on her way to the place of execution, the people expressed their abhorrence of her crimes in terms which, though not proper for the occasion, testified their astonishment that such a wretch could have existed. They even prayed for her damnation instead of her salvation. They doubted not but that the devil would fetch her and hoped that she would go to hell. Such were the sentiments of the mob. Elizabeth was hung and the audience applauded and cheered three times as her body was left hanging for 30 minutes. Her body was then placed in a hackney coach and transported to the surgeon's hall for dissection. The penalty was far, far worse than death by sending the body for dissection. The only people at that point in time who could be dissected were murderers. The idea was to ensure that they would never enter heaven and their damnation would last forever. And that brings us to the end of Elizabeth's life. And as we conclude this episode, the story of Elizabeth Brownrigg serves as a haunting reminder of the complex interplay between societal norms, legal structures, and individual choices that shape history. The tragic fate of all three Marys, young girls subjected to Elizabeth's cruelty, sheds light on vulnerabilities of those without a voice in a society that often turned a blind eye to abuse. The legal system's intervention, though delayed, eventually did bring Elizabeth to justice, but not before the lives of her innocent victims were irrevocably shattered. So join us next time on Historical True Crime as we continue to explore the threads of history that have shaped our present and ponder the lessons we can glean from the stories of those who came before us. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or suggestion of a case or criminal to cover in an upcoming episode, you can find us on social media, on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod, or on Facebook at Historical True Crime Podcast. You can also send me an email directly at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.